0: Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud busting body language expert. I have spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. We're going deep into investment crime with Chuck. Gallagher. Now he is a felon for doing just that. He created a Ponzi scheme. He's going to tell us how investment scams can be spotted from trusted advisors that you're working with already, how he ended up in prison and what it's really like there. There's a ton to learn. You are really going to enjoy this. Chuck, welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm so excited to have you here. Not only uh, just to chat a little bit, but just because we're friends and it's always good to, good to catch up.
1: Well, it's great to be on your show. So thank you so much for the invitation. This is fun.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, it's going to be great. So let's, let's let everybody get to know you a little bit first. So we are, we're just after Easter when we're recording and right. um, we're in the middle of the apocalypse. We're locked in. And so tell me, how's your toilet paper stash?
1: You know, I'm good. I am prepared.
0: Are you? Okay. Yes.
1: And I've learned the more cheese you eat, the less you need. So,
0: oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay.
1: Hey, well, what can I say? You know, you have to have these mental precautions.
0: Well, you know, people tune in and you never know what you're going to learn
1: here. So. There you go. See? Number
0: one for the day. Okay. What about Tiger King? Are you watching Tiger King? No,
1: I have not done that yet. I've been oh. hooked on dirty money. Oh, okay. Uh, which is really good, and it's, you know, some of the things that are funny to sit there and watch, I've written about, and it's uh-huh. like, oh, it's so cool to have written about it, and then you see it kind of in a docu-series on uh-huh. Netflix.
0: Oh, I'm going to write that down, because I haven't seen it.
1: Yeah, Dirty uh-huh. Money good. It okay. definitely is good.
0: Okay. And so are you saying it's pretty true to life, or?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, especially with what you're doing, you're talking about fraud busters, Mm -hmm. these great stories about uh, fraudulent things that took place and kind of how that process got started and did it intend to be the way it ended. And it's, it's, it's a pretty good series. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Um, Okay. Just a couple more questions. What in this apocalyptic time, what is the latest time you got out of your pajamas and into real clothes?
1: Oh, wow. That's a wonderful question. See, you're assuming that I'm not in my pajamas right now.
0: No, see, I'm, is... assuming, I'm assuming that you are. <laughs> <So>. oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'll say, you know, it's been one of those things. I've, I have found that I'm sleeping in a little more in the morning, which mm-hmm. I uh, am enjoying. Uh, but I'm also able to get a whole lot of stuff done in a day because you don't tend to have the same interruptions you do in a normal day like we had been accustomed with phone calls or people at the office asking questions or whatever the circumstance. So
0: Exactly. Okay. So, but you never gave me a time on your pajamas. <laughs> okay. You... So
1: let's assume that's somewhere in the nine to nine thirty-ish range. Oh, that's
0: not bad. I had someone tell me three o'clock of the following day. (laughs) So don't be ashamed at nine.
1: Yeah, no, no, no.
0: Yeah. Okay. Last question. Earliest time you started drinking?
1: You know, so here's the thing. I'm not a big drinker. Uh And so it's been one of those things where uh, a good number of friends have been like, oh my gosh, I'm having a covatini or whatever. Uh And I'm like, I'm just killing it on unsweet tea.
2: Uh-huh. I'm okay. trying
1: to maintain the keto, kind of not put a lot of weight on during this this thing, so um, I, I just haven't been consuming my sweets through alcohol at this
0: point. There you go. Okay, yeah, I haven't been drinking a lot either, but you know what I'm noticing is I'm dropping a little bit of weight because I'm not going to all these conferences. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Those snack breaks at the conferences, man, they get you every time. They show you're hungry, and then they show up with cinnamon rolls. I'm like, come on, I don't have a chance. And we're doing this uh, three times a week. I uh, know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, all right, let's jump in. Let's get right to it. Now, you have a very interesting background, which is why I w- wanted to chat with you here, especially on fraud busting. So, you ended up in prison. Oh yeah. How, oh, yeah. how, how did that happen? Tell me the whole, everybody wants to know the whole story. What, what's the scoop?
1: Okay. So we'll take it in like little bite-sized chunks. Okay. It never was, I, I would not have been voted in high school or college, the person most likely to end up in federal prison, but I did. Okay. So let's go back to the, um, mid to late eighties. Okay. Uh, 1987, in fact,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, So I was tax partner in a CPA firm. Mm -hmm. I testified before Congress on various aspects of federal tax law. i would written articles in national magazines. I've taught continuing education in 30 states. I was on a really great upward trajectory, but it was the mid to late eighties. There was a bit of a recession taking place and I was overextended and underfunded.
2: Okay. Much debt. Got
1: it. So so it, it it occurred very simply, January 1987, I get a call from my local banker who says, Chuck, you're two months behind in your house payment. Is there a problem?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Now, Tracy, here's the deal. If something happens to you unexpected, if it's a trigger, okay, okay. like this banker and I went to Sunday school class together, we were chicken eating buddies together, he sent me lots of business. And he calls me and he says, you're two months behind in your house payment. Is there a problem? And I'm like, internally, oh, crap. If I can't manage my own financial affairs, is he going to send me any money? Surely I can't admit to him that I'm two months behind in my house payment, which, by the way, I was. Uh Uh-huh. But if I admit it, then what would he do? He might think to himself, oh, my gosh, he can't manage his own money. But I'm sending him other people's money to manage, and I'm not sure if this is going to make sense. And if he didn't send me the business, then what would happen? I'd have less business. And if I had less business, I'd have less money. And if I can't pay my bills now, I damn sure couldn't pay him otherwise. So, my goodness, I've got to say something to preserve face.
2: Oh, wow.
0: Okay. Okay. So it I, happened like that, like just in a snap.
1: Boom, like that. Which, okay. by the way, for your program – Typically, if you talk to your average fraudster, they didn't start by saying, I am going to be a fraudster.
2: Uh
1: It's just some weird something that causes you by a trigger, an emotional trigger, to do something really stupid. Got it. So, um, quick side note to this. It's like having a four-year-old and you've just made cupcakes for the Friday take to school day thing. Yeah. And the four-year-old eats and got cupcake all over their face. Uh And you go in as mama and you look down at your little daughter and you say, did you eat that cupcake? What will she say? No. No, mama. No. And there's chocolate all over her face. Uh And we ask ourselves the question, how did that happen? And it's an instinctual fight or flight thing. If you think you're going to be in trouble by nature, you will fight or flight but you'll do something that rationally you look back and say dumbest thing i've ever done mm-hmm. yeah mom ate the cupcake and it was good yeah so i could have admitted yeah i'm behind but let's work it out i'll get a big bonus at the end of tax season no problem but i didn't
0: oh Uh-oh. got it okay
1: so he says to me he's I, I say back to him i said look are you sure that payment hasn't been misapplied now keep in mind tracy that was in 1987. We still had punch cards. Yeah, yeah. Ads, right. So he, well, I don't think so, but let me check and see. Now, during the moment, momentary lapse of him checking and seeing, here's how it plays out. And this is the fraud triangle. One, there's need.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: needed $2,000. Okay. That's what it was. 1000 a month, two months, $2,000. I need $2,000. Oh, crap. Where am I going to find that? Mm-hmm. So my need moves to opportunity. Where is the opportunity for me to quickly lay my grubby little hands on $2,000 to maintain the ruse that I am able to maintain my financial affairs? Right. Okay? okay. I could have gone to my partners, but the partners that signed the checks were at a uh, an audit in the far western part of North Carolina and would not be back. And this was on a Friday. Okay. So that wasn't going to happen. Couldn't do that. Could have called Mama, but Mama lived in Maryland, so I could have called her and said, "Hey, can you loan me 2000? thousand?" And she would have said, "Sure," mm-hmm. except it's nineteen eighty-seven. I mean, we didn't have PayPal or deposit a check by phone. Kind of none of that stuff existed. Didn't
0: take a few days,
1: right? Not gonna work. I gotta solve this problem quickly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I then thought, "Okay, wait a minute. I'm a trustee of a client's trust." Oh. Oh, no, I know. That's the sound that I get every time I admit that to a group. Uh-huh. And, and the, the, the beneficiaries of the trust would not need the proceeds for approximately eight to ten years. Mm-hmm. So, so need moves to opportunity, moves to rationalization.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: rationalization would be, okay, I'm going to borrow money from this trust. Notice the operative word, borrow. 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 Right, I'm going to borrow money from this trust. And, and of course I'm not stealing it because if I'm borrowing it, I need to have a note. So mm-hmm. I went to the computer, Word WordPerfect, WordStar, whatever it Word was. WordPerfect,
0: yes. You remember that <laughs>
1: stuff, right? You know, you can tell I'm an old geezer. I can remember stuff like that. I, Charles Gallagher, being of sound mind and body, and I'm sitting there typing this on the computer and wrote out this note. And I stole the money from the trust.
0: And all of this happened in the period of what? 30 minutes?
1: Yeah. 30 to 45.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Banker calls me back, Chuck. I've looked at and before he could finish the sentence, it was like, David, I am so sorry. I cannot believe this. You know, my wife and I, we just had our first son, which was true. Okay. And now I'm going to offend a bunch of people right here, not intending to, but here's what happened. But, and you know, she pays the bills. Hmm
0: almost spit out my water.
1: <laughs> now, the truth is she didn't pay the bills. I did, mm-hmm. but he didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And, and she thought in her postpartum time that I was taking care of it. And gosh, I thought she was, and I can't believe I've done this. And I'm, I'm going to bring the money down and pay you right now. And, mm-hmm. and he responded, he said, Chuck, don't worry about it. He said, when I was in college, I, I passed a bad check
2: once. Mm-hmm. And we had
1: this male bonding moment. Got it. And I took the stolen money, paid the delinquent house payments. We had a good laugh over it. Done. Okay. Now, it. end of tax season, I get a big bonus. So if you, if you and I were in a large conference and I was talking to a large group, I'd ask the question, how many of you think at the end of tax season, when I got my bonus, I paid off what I had stolen?
0: I think you did. I'm raising my hand.
1: Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It it warms my heart. It? Okay, good.
0: Good. Yeah. Good.
1: I did. Okay. Of course I paid it off because if I've had a need and I found an opportunity to truly rationalize the fraud, mm-hmm. I need to pay it off.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I did, but I found out, well, gosh, it was easy. So I did it again Uh huh. and I paid that one off. And then I found out, gosh, it really is easy. It was almost as if I had my own private hedge fund.
0: Yeah, or a line of credit. Yeah,
1: or a line of credit. Uh-huh. So functionally, what happened was from that simple beginning in 1987 through the no- through November of 1990, I ended up creating a Ponzi scheme and embezzled two hundred fifty
0: four thousand dollars. Oh wow! So so was. Was it actually an investment that you set up that you ran like a Ponzi scheme or how? um, It was
1: a fake investment that I set up like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Uh
0: Right, because you could,
1: because you were right there. Right.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: So from a functional perspective, what and and people then come along and they'll say, well, what did you do with the money? Yeah. Lifestyle. Okay. Because here's what I found, which is really weird, Uh and I'm not sure that it's any different in 2020, so let's be honest. Okay. But. The more money I invested in lifestyle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: house, car, clothes, blah blah blah, the more that investment people could see. The more they wanted to do business with me. Oh, okay, okay. So people would look and they would say, "Well, my gosh, he really must be good at what he does." I mean, look how look at the
2: trappings, yeah. Uh huh.
1: So it and, and during that process, the psychological part of it that allowed it to continue was well but i'm making more money so as long as i'm making more money i have the capacity to repay Mm -hmm. but the repayment in reality was just taking more from someone else and making the ponzi scheme not that by the way i knew what the heck a ponzi scheme was i learned later that's what it was oh really oh Oh, no no clue not a clue But learned later, that's what it was. It was just a natural occurrence of the beginning of theft that continued to multiply.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So at a certain point, did everyone want their money back and you were like, sorry, I'm out? Or how does that, how does it actually end up melting down? Like what's the...
1: Okay. Fair fair question. So November 1990, Mm I'm in Boise, Idaho, and I am teaching a continuing education course, eight Mm -hmm. hours of tax law. Okay. I know that just sounds so titillating. It
0: sounds just, riveting. Wow. Yes.
1: Oh Yes, there it is. But eight hours of tax law, we break for lunch, and there's a um, – you remember the old pink slips. It said, while you were out. Yeah. And that's how we used to get notes. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, there was one on the door, and it said, call your partner's ASAP. And I was kind of hungry, but everybody had gone to get lunch, in the, the phone bank line, which uh-huh. is what they used to have, was available at the hotel. So I placed the call. Talked to one of my partners and he said, listen, he said, one of the clients that you've done, invested some money for or something or another has had a change of circumstance. They need to liquidate the investment ASAP. And he's called me four times today. I have no earthly clue what I'm supposed to be doing. If you'll just tell me where the file is so I can get the process started, I'll get him off my back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Tracy, here's the truth. The truth was it was a Ponzi scheme. And for a Ponzi scheme to work, you have to have an influx of cash greater to, equal to, or greater than the amount you need to pay out when you need to pay it out. Exactly. But this was unexpected.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: wasn't, there was no influx of cash that would allow me to just instantly liquidate someone's investment
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So, I told him I said, "Listen, I said it's not like this is invested with Charles Schwab. We just can't call Chuck and liquidate the investment, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make a telephone call or two, and I'll be back in the office tomorrow anyway, but call him and tell him that I've got it under control and that we'll have his investment liquidated real quick that'll get him off your back and It's just easier for me to do this than try to get you involved in something that'll waste too much of your time.
0: Oh, now, that is a real classic um." Like, like what I hear from bankers when they report fraud. It's keeping other people away from
1: yep. the,
2: uh,
0: the papers and, and yep. all the files. Yeah.
1: Yep. I knew at the time that call was made that the card had been now pulled from the house of cards. Mm-hmm. It was all going to collapse, but no one else on the planet, just me and God, knew what was getting ready to happen. Oh, man. Okay. So, uh, so that's how the collapse began.
0: Okay. And then what happened when you got back or the next day?
1: Well, there's kind of two parts to the story. Okay. 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 The first part was the night before, um, I I actually considered ending my life. It was one of those moments where it's like, okay. I have legitimately been successful. I was very good at what I did. Um, people knew me as this one person, but here it is. There's a quarter of a million dollars worth, which seemed like a lot of money at the time, uh-huh. but a quarter of a million dollars worth of, of just pure fraud. If I ended my life, there's way more insurance uh-huh. than anybody would need. It would It would pay off the folks that I'd stolen money from and, People would mourn for a short period of time. But, you know, my kids were real young. My wife would, I'm sure, remarry. Life would go on, and I would just be a momentary blip in time. Right. But that night, I ended up – I'm I'm chicken. Okay, let me just be the first to tell you this. I I don't like pain, okay? Right, right, yeah. Most guys do. Uh don't like pain. So I ended up calling – Anybody I could get, psychiatrist, psychologist, proctologist, didn't care. Just needed to be a doctor, somebody with a P behind them. Okay. Yeah, talk to him. Got this one guy, and, um, and he ended up making a statement to me that was really profound. He said, son, he says, you have made a terrible mistake. Yeah. But you are not a mistake. Okay. And it was like, okay. He said, son, you've made a terrible mistake, but you are not a mistake. And then he said, the choices you make tonight will define the life you live in the future and the legacy you leave for your two sons. Oh, make boy. Okay. choices wisely.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Tracy, because of that, I, I made it through the night.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Obviously still here, um, which was a real blessing. In, in ways that I can't even begin to fathom, but the next day when I got home, I, I thought to myself, I said, okay, maybe, just maybe, just maybe somehow, if I, if I tell my partners what's happened, I mean, I know they're going to fire me, and I know this is going to be ugly, but maybe somehow there'll be a way to do something to mitigate this whole thing. Right. Like maybe they'll say, we're going to go borrow the money legitimately, pay everybody off and nobody will know you're fired and that's where it will be in. Uh-huh. So I get back the next day. I needed to visit with my wife, obviously, needed to visit with my partners. I figured I'd try my partners first because that was like a practice round for golf.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: got in there. Yeah, so for your I, wife. Oh man. Okay. It's like, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe there's just some way this is going to work. She had no idea by the way what was taking place.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh anyway, long story short, uh went into my partner's one of them told me that he he had a solution. I was ecstatic over the idea that he had a solution. He told me he was a big hunter that he had the appropriate uh 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 ammunition and pistols and so forth for me to end my life. I should go down by the river to do that. There's plenty of insurance. Oh um, so
0: he had your first solution kind of up his sleeve.
1: Yeah he 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 read my mind from the night before. Now the other one, no political intent with this, but with like Donald Trump Flair said, you're fired. Uh-huh. But you need to tell us everything. You at least you know you owe us that. Right. Um so Uh, I I decided at that point, there was no point in hiding it. It was just, let's just lay it out. The card's on the table. There's Mm -hmm. no particular reason why this should be hard. Um, So I admitted to them that functionally I was a liar and a thief. And and after I met with them, then I went home and had to admit the same thing to my wife. Mm -hmm. So for everybody that was close to me, it was an incredibly devastating day because, you know, this illusion of, who you are just got totally shattered Mm -hmm. uh, from people that um, from practical perspectives trusted you the most.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So then that, that gets you through like step one of this whole story, it seems like. So what happened next? Tell me how, how did this thing go? Or, or would you like to, maybe take it a different way I'll let you pick and say like what are some of the signs like what are some of the signs that that people can can look for at least in this little segment right like like a dishonest like financial guy that they're working with like is there anything because we picked out one sign is there is there anything else that like looking back you know like if they hadn't known what to look for they could have picked it out sooner like before the cards fell
1: yeah okay so that's actually a really cool question. Okay, so let's look at it this way: you are the person, you're the client.
2: I'm the client, right?
1: I, I'm the fraudster. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's the way you would identify that there's going to be a fraud. So, something's wrong taking place. Mm-hmm. First thing I would do if I was a fraudster is I'd say, Tracy, look, we need to talk. Uh, I really value you as a client. You're probably one of my favorite clients. But one of the things that's come up is, uh, you know, in this COVID-19 thing, there have been a lot of things that have uh, underlying now have surfaced. And there's a, a very highly specialized fund that's available right now that's paying a 12% per year guaranteed return.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: it's a minimum investment. And you have to leave the money in for five years in order for this to work because there's a cycle to what's taking place in the development of this uh, vaccine and then the second tier of the vaccine that will be coming out. And the reason I'm mentioning it to you is I've only got 10 slots available to be able to put people into the fund. And again, because of our relationship, I just wanted to let you know it's available. If you're not interested, no problem on my end.
2: Oh,
0: that is rolling off your tongue really easy.
1: Okay. Well, I've been (laughs) there.
0: That is is scary, Chuck, how you just did that.
1: Okay. So, number one, there's a promise. So, notice what happened. Mm -hmm. It was exclusive. The promise was 12% per year, guaranteed for five years. Mm -hmm. Got to leave it in for five years. I only have a limited number of spaces that are available. So, it's kind of like fishing. It's Mm -hmm. like, I know I've got this barrel of fish out there, so I'm going to cast the bait, but then I'm going to start reeling that back in because in reality, I want you to want it. I don't really want to sell it to you. I want you to be like, oh my God, I've got to get in on that. That's Uh awesome. Okay. So promise would be the first part. If somebody's making a promise, that sounds too freaking good to be true because normal people can't get it. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it ain't real. Got it. Okay. For what? Two is illusion.
2: Mm-hmm. Now
1: the question is, well, what's the investment? Okay, so let's think this out, uh, just in terms of playing this up. What's the investment? Well, I just pr- I connected it to COVID nineteen, and I said it's related to you know uh, wh- whatever the I, I forgot what the word was, but you know the inoculation that you're going to get or the yeah,
0: um, uh,
1: what did you say? Um, yeah, I know. Vaccine. That's
0: what you said. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So look, you don't know, Jack, about a vaccine. I don't know anything about a vaccine. You can throw out a number of names, Gilead Sciences, or come up with some names of places that would seem to be reasonable Mm -hmm. that you could, you know, I could send you articles on or something that would lend the belief that this was real. Okay. So Mm -hmm. frauds, After they get you from the promise, they're going to give you something to make you believe it's real. Okay. We're going to take a quick time out. Bernie Madoff was brilliant. How in the hell he was able to print out statements every month and send them to people who were really financially smart Uh that were able to trick them into believing that he was successfully creating the results he was is mind boggling to me.
0: Really? So just the logistics of it is the what's most fascinating. Is
1: amazing he, uh-huh. the guy was brilliant just used it the wrong way
0: right 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 okay
1: but for the most part you're going to create something that the the illusion is going to be enough that you would believe it okay. okay so promise illusion the third thing is trust okay so who do fraudsters defraud generally speaking it is people that are closest to them that there's the greatest trust in. Okay, yeah. Okay. So Bernie Madoff defrauded generally people in the Jewish community. Why? Because he was Jewish, because he was connected there. Because if you have people who are connected there that are part of this, it's like, oh my God, he's great. So for a fraudster, all you have to do is get one person to bite. Mm-hmm. then get a second to bite, and after the first two bite, the first two will be the best sales pitch you ever had to the third.
0: Got it. Okay. So, 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 it's, so it becomes a community
1: thing. Exactly. Okay. So, so, so play this out for just a second because both of us are involved in the National Speakers Association. Now, yeah. I want to be crystal clear with this. I'm not perpetrating a fraud. This is for purposes of your show. But if if I were perpetrating a fraud, who would I go after? I'd go after someone in the National Speakers Association that we're friendly enough, they would say, oh my gosh, this is great. So Mm -hmm. let's just say for hypothetical purposes, it's Scott McCain or Jane Jenkins Hurlong or Steve Gilliland, but someone that's in the Hall of Fame that people would know. Mm -hmm. And if I said, look, we've got this program that... Mitigates problems that speakers have in downturns because we've been able to do whatever the heck it happens to be. Sure. You know, Scott's an investor. Jane's an investor. Tracy, you might want to consider that because of our special relationship and what you do. I think you'd be awesome for this. Yeah. But-
0: it, oh, it gets everybody on board and it has a little prestige right there with it.
1: Exactly. So mm-hmm. what you do is you're going to pick up the phone and call Scott or Jane and they're going to say, oh, yeah, it's great, man. Mm-hmm. Chuck told me XYZ is happening and I've been getting the checks just like clockwork. Of course, he's getting checks from somebody else's money, but he doesn't know that. Right, right. And then all of a sudden, if you get enough people on board, which is what Madoff did, mm-hmm. then it, becomes, it becomes the place you want to be. Right. And the better you are at it, the more you push people away because by pushing them away, it causes them to draw closer.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. So
1: It's a pit promise, illusion, trust. Got it. Okay. Okay. So if you're sitting back for anybody that's listening to the, to the podcast, if you're sitting back and thinking, Oh my gosh, somebody really close to me has said, I've got this great thing probably a friend at the country club or the church or whomever you're connected with, but I've got this great thing. Here's what it is. And it's only to people that are close with close knit. You need to do your due diligence because there's a reasonably good chance it's fraud. And right now, because we're sitting here in the midst of a global pandemic where people are sequestered at home and folks are losing money, now is the time for fraudsters to be rampant. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, when the economy goes down, fraud goes up. Absolutely. And people and are just starting to feel the desperation. I mean, we are just scratching the surface of what we're going to see. Yep. So, so th- those are brilliant tips. I love that. So, okay, what happened next? You've okay. admitted it to your, to your business partners. You've admitted yep. it to your I've wife. You got fired.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Went to the uh, clients and told them what happened. Of course, they did not like me. That yeah, would no, be huh? a minor understatement. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tracy, the question to them was, well, first I went to the state board of CPA examiners and said, look, I'm relinquishing my license. There's no sense in conducting an investigation. I'm just outing myself. Let's just uh-huh. be done with it. Yeah. But I went to the clients that I had stole money from and I said, look, here's the choice. You can put me in jail and I will not be able to earn any money and therefore I can't repay you mm-hmm. or we can work out. Give me give me time to see if I can work out being able to repay you in exchange for you not wanting to immediately prosecute.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And the you know five clients that I had stolen money from, I'm going to make it easy for me and use fifty thousand apiece just so mm-hmm. we can do that. Didn't like me, but they said they wanted to be repaid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, with the help of family and friends, I was able to ultimately raise the money to repay them uh, all the principal plus interest at nine percent which they were okay with. Mm-hmm. And local DA did not want to prosecute. He said, look, you've lost your license. You've lost your interest in the partnership. You and your wife have sold every asset that you have. You've repaid everybody. You repaid them with interest. I mean, there's just no value here. Plus, mm-hmm. I used to do his tax return, and he was a nice guy.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So then, so you got the money, like, I guess loans from family is what it sounds like. Loans for the most
1: part. family and bank, yep. Yeah. And then what yeah. happened? Well, it was uh, mid-1991, after all of this was paid off, I get the knock on the door. And at the door, there is, uh, the is uh, two people dressed in suits. One was the IRS, and the other was the uh, Department of Labor. Uh-huh. Department of Labor criminal investigators said, are you Charles Gallagher? Uh-huh. In the South, when you're called by your Christian name, you're in trouble.
2: Oh, yeah, and yeah?
0: your middle name, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. He says, so uh, we're investigating you for uh, 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 embezzling money from a retirement plan. Well, I was a specialist in the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which is the law that governs all retirement plans. So I clearly knew better.
2: Uh And the
1: other, the IRS, wanted to investigate me for failing to pay tax on stolen money. Which
0: Oh, so they did the Al Capone move.
2: Okay, okay.
1: 1040, line 23, other income, stolen money. Who would do that? Right, okay. right. So uh, ultimately the federal government, uh, I mean, there was no investigation because I'd already outed myself. It was pretty public by that point in time. Uh-huh. Uh, ultimately we agreed I would plead guilty to uh, one count of embezzlement and one count of uh, tax evasion. Uh-huh. And, uh, I will say the federal government was kind. They did not have to do this, Uh but all of this was in 1991 and they initially wanted to put me in prison and get this thing over with. But if I was incarcerated, I couldn't repay the bank Uh and I did actually have a job. It didn't pay a lot, but I did have a job. So couldn't repay the bank if I was incarcerated. So the federal government deferred prosecution until, uh, Uh, 1995. And in 1995, I did what I said I would do. I pled guilty to one count of tax evasion, one count of uh, embezzlement. Mm -hmm. And on October 2nd, 1995, took 23 steps into federal prison, became 11642.058, a convicted felon.
0: Oh, boy. So was there a court thing? Or did you just go straight there? Like, how does all that come together?
1: Oh, it was pretty simple. There was a court thing. You go before the judge, the judge says, how do you want to plead to the two counts? You say, I plead guilty. I did. He said, okay, you're guilty. You know, they took me back fingerprinted me at that point in time. And then they released me on my own recognizance and said that they would let me know when, um, sentencing was going to be held. Um, so in June of 1995, I went for sentencing. I was hoping they would give me uh, probation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I hadn't fled the country, I hadn't done anything wrong, I was making my payments like I should, I had made restitution, etc. Judge sentenced me to 18 months active, three years uh, probation following that, and then told me, okay, go home, and we'll tell you when to report, and then they told me when to report to federal prison, and uh, on October 2nd, 1995, that's the day I walked in.
0: Oh, wow, okay, so what's, uh, what's prison like? Like I'm so like, is it like TV or is it like what's it? What's the experience?
1: Um. Okay, it's not so much like TV. Um, it depends, per, I guess, to some extent on which prison you're in. I was mm. in a minimum security prison. Now most people say, "Oh well, yeah, club fed. That's where all the white collar people hang out."
2: Right, right. <clears throat> Wrong. No.
1: Okay. So it is a club because we're all convicted felons and we'll be for the rest of our lives Uh other than presidential pardon. And, uh, which I'm not expecting. You don't think Uh, Trump
0: likes to pardon people.
1: He's not as, (laughs) he's not not as as, as willing to do that. His, his get a lot of attention, but you know, it's like, I, I don't have any celebrity on my court that's trying to like, Buy for me, what can I say? That's
0: what you need. You need a Kardashian, and you'd be all right.
1: If I knew a Kardashian, I'd be in like (laughs) Flynn. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know a Kardashian, what can I say? I've yet to figure that out, what the appeal is, but you know, I guess I'm too old. I don't know. Uh Anyway, um, so so here's the thing Um, prison was probably the worst experience that I've had, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me.
0: Oh, okay. Explain that.
1: Um, so it's like, uh, uh, figuratively, it's like going in and just being stripped. You have mm-hmm. nothing. There is no ego that that you can play with because mm-hmm. you're just the same as everybody else. Now, mm-hmm. I was clearly a minority. Um, you know, it was 70% drug dealers, 30% everything else, whatever that is, Um, it was 70% African-American, 20% Hispanic, 10% white. So I'm this, you know, white collar crime minority dude in a prison of predominantly drug dealers who have had 10 and 15 year sentences that because of good behavior got moved down to a minimum security facility.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So I mean, Tracy, I learned more stuff than you could shake a stick at. It was oh. the most incredible experience of learning different cultures, different races, different thought processes. Um, you know, it's like this shrinked 18 months of, oh, wow, I would never have gotten the education outside that I got inside.
0: Oh, well, what's the number one thing you learned?
1: Well. The, 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 the number one is kind of hard, but okay. but there are several. You can go are, with two.
0: Two is fine.
1: Yeah. So when I first got in, my uh, cellmate was a young African-American guy. His name was Buck. Okay. My name is Chuck. So uh-huh. we weren't sure if they put us together for comic relief or not, but okay. it was Buck and Chuck.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Okay. So in the first 24 hours, Buck says Nothing. Nothing. And I decide, well, if he ain't going to talk, I ain't going to talk because, you know, I didn't go to Barnes & Noble by prison for dummies, wasn't sure exactly what I was supposed to do. Right, right. So 24 hours later, he looks at me. By the way, I'm not making fun the way I do this. It just makes sense if it, you hear it uh-huh. like it was. He looks at me and he says, yo, man, he said, what you in here for? Uh-huh. And I'm like, ooh, he's spoken. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I said, well, you know, I had to put my, like, John Wayne Clint Eastwood bad, ooh. I said, I'm a liar and a thief. He said, word? I'm like, word? Uh yo, man. Uh I said, word. (laughs) Word. He said, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? And he flies out of the cell. Uh And I'm like, Uh what the hell just happened? Uh I mean, these Uh are the first words we've spoken. And I got no clue what just took place. Uh Uh And then like the Tasmanian devil, he comes, he flies back in. He says, man, you ain't going to make it in here. He said, but I'll make you a deal. And I'm like, make me a deal. All right. Wow. Convict, convict want to make me a deal. And then I thought, but I am a convict. Maybe it's okay. I didn't read prison for dummies. I'm not really sure. He says, i tell you what. He said, I'll teach you everything you needs to know in here. He said, I'll teach you the lingo. I'll teach you what you needs to say and when you needs to say it. He said, I'll have your back. He said, I'll make it so when you get out of here, you can go to the hood anywhere, any place, and ain't nobody going to mess with you. Okay. If you'll teach me how to speak correctly so when I get out, I got a chance at getting a real job because I never want to be back here.
0: Oh, man. Okay. Okay. So
1: did you do it? Yeah. It was like he was an angel. Huh. It was like, here is this little guy who had a 10 year sentence had already been through five years in a medium security place comes in, you know, and he's a street dude. Mm -hmm. And he wants me to teach him how to not be a street dude. And he's going to keep me safe. And one of the first things he said to me, he said, now you made your first mistake with me, but it's okay. And I said, what was it? He said, you told me why you were in here. He said, don't tell anybody in prison why you're there or anything about your background, because the less people know about you, the more they will fear you, so if you don't want to get your ass whipped, okay. don't tell them, I'm an accountant, because uh-huh. if you tell them that, you in trouble, yeah, if yeah. they think you might have been with the special forces somewhere, and they have no clue, and you, they say to you, what you in here for, and you say, yeah, I'm just doing my time, that's it, we don't need to talk anymore about that, this is not about me, uh-huh. i'm here for my just doing my time oh, then man. they will fear you and you'll never get in trouble and it was like that was probably one of the best pieces of advice i ever got
0: oh wow okay so how how can we apply that out in the rest of the world is it is it just always knowing more than is it immediately obvious and having a, a cloak of mystery around you or what's the how how, how can we use that
1: Well, you know, if you sit back and you said, okay, what's the environment that I'm in and where do I find safety?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And and that's, that's kind of what he was laying out. It's like, look, you know, if you want to be safe, just recognize if you're in an unsafe environment, more mystery equals greater safety because what people don't know keeps a, a bit of distance. Okay. Now, the upside to that is, is if I want to be close, then it means I also need to be vulnerable. Oh, got it. So so think about it. Whenever you're in a presentation
2: mm-hmm. or
1: I'm in a presentation, if if we're in this presentation and we're willing to be vulnerable, oh my gosh, you know as well as I do at the end, when people come up to you, it's like, Tracy, you were vulnerable. That I, I, I have had, and they'll tell you whatever their challenge has been. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you were willing to be vulnerable and to open your heart and to be there for them made the experience for them impactful. Mm-hmm. Now, you didn't know that walking into your presentation, but you know it walking out. Right, right. So, you know, less vulnerable may be more safe or mm-hmm. more vulnerable may be less safe, but more impactful.
0: Right. Oh wow. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. All right, so what else did you learn in prison? Anything else we can cuz that was actually pretty huge. I love that.
1: Well, you know, th- there were there were a lot of things um some, some of which were uh marginally entertaining. The one thing Buck told me going in pretty quickly, he said uh, the first Monday morning They count you six times a day. It's called count time. They count you six times a day. And so at the 6 a.m. count, uh, you know, this is my first Monday, Buck kicks the bunk bed. And he said, get up. I said, why? He said, get up. I said, okay. He said, it's time to go to the chow hall. I said, I'm not hungry. He said, okay, look, he said, you're in the federal prison. It's going to take him three weeks to figure out you're here. This is the federal government. Nothing moves fast. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, if you're waiting for your payment from the federal government, remember, nothing moves fast. Yeah, no, we're not going to see those for a while. Anyway, um, he says, look, he said they won't figure out you here for three weeks. He said, so if you're laying in the bed, some, you know, guard's going to come through, see you laying in the bed, he's going to give you a job. Because everybody in prison has to work. You have to work in prison. Otherwise, it would be called slavery. Mm, And they pay you. You'll get paid 12 cents an hour. It's amazing how much money you'll make.
2: Uh
0: huh. Is it get, really 12 cents? Is that what you get?
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. 12 cents an hour. He said, So look, he said, For three weeks, you just need to walk around, walk like you're going somewhere with intention. If you look like you're going someplace to do something, the guards will leave you alone. So he said, For all day, you need to walk around with intention. And he said, Find you a job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, he said, cause if you don't, you're going to get the crappiest job that's available. I promise you. And you'll be stuck with it because nobody else wants it and it'll be miserable. Mm-hmm. So I went to the business office. I'm a reasonably smart person here. So yeah, I went yeah. to the business office and I meet the business manager for the prison. And I said, uh, do you have any openings? Well, maybe I said, well, I'm a former CPA. I believe I have an opening. <laughs> that,
0: that sounds a lot like uh, Shawshank Redemption.
1: <laughs> oh my Boy, Tracy, it so was. Uh-huh. He lined the whole business office with white collar criminals. Okay. And we all wanted to be there because it was air conditioned in the summer and heated in the winter, and that was good for us. Uh huh. Uh huh. Couldn't use a calculator. You couldn't use a computer. You couldn't use a typewriter. Everything had to be done by hand. They were uh-huh. afraid if it plugged into the wall, you were going to freak them out. Okay. So, anyway, I go in and, and I'm working. I'd been there for about three and a half months. One day, the new warden walks in. And so when the warden walks in, man, you start looking like you're working. Ooh, you're feverishly doing something.
2: Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Now we'd all figured out that the prison was buying crap at prices three times what you could buy it for from Walmart. Oh, so we knew this was, it was just ridiculous. Uh huh. Anyway, Warden comes in, talks with the business manager. They go behind this soundproof room. And so you hear this muddle sounds. They're yelling. Right? Uh He walks out. He looks at all the inmates. And he said, inmates, we all look up. He said, you're fired. Now, Tracy, let me just say as a side note, you know, going to prison sucks. But being fired from a prison job really is just, it hurts your ego. Doesn't hurt your heart there a little? (laughs) Oh my gosh. But he felt like we weren't being punished enough.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: So he brought the crack dealers who love being outside into the business manager's office and they didn't know Jack about accounting. Uh
2: uh-uh.
1: And then took us and sent us out on this Air Force base where we were. So my job was cleaning toilets and urinals with a toothbrush. Oh boy. How long did that last? Uh till I left. Oh. Now, I am. I am the bathroom cleaner. I will tell you that's a skill now that has transformed and moved into my home. So,
0: oh, okay, okay.
1: I'm the man.
2: Oh
0: my goodness! Wow. Okay. Okay. So, um, I I don't want to take a uh, ton ton more time here, like of your time, and I know people are listening. So, uh, one last thing out of prison that you got, or or would you like to talk about, um. What people should think about like moving forward, like if they have what it takes to be a fraudster. I saw something along those lines uh, from um, something I saw with maybe you wrote or someone wrote, but you are definitely involved in it.
1: Okay. So let's, let's think about this for just a second. First thing, let's talk about what it takes to be a fraudster. Now, I'm going to okay. make a statement that will be a bit controversial, okay. but I'm going to suggest anybody could be a fraudster. All right. Okay. Now, there are some people that are like, well, I would never do anything wrong. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to challenge that for just a moment. Mm-hmm. So let me play this out for just a second. Question mm-hmm. one. Um, would you, if you're listening to this, would you voluntarily choose to do something unethical? It's either yes or no.
0: You want me to answer? Uh, I guess it would depend on the circumstance,
1: okay. but Depends probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's get a question two. Okay. Do you think that voluntarily breaking the law is unethical?
0: Uh, not always.
1: Not always. Yeah. Okay, that's an interesting response. Okay. Well,
0: well, okay. So let me explain it. So if I was going to run a stoplight, that's that's breaking the law, right? Right. But is it is it? I would say it's unethical and in, in just unsafe in rush hour. But at 3 a.m. when no one's around in the middle of a quarantine, right. am I going to sit there?
1: Pro- probably not. Okay. All right. So so you have, which is fair, and that's good, you have basically said there's kind of some um, arbitrary internal guidance limit as to what's kind of okay and kind of not okay.
2: Uh-huh. Okay.
1: Now, you and I both are going to fall into the next two Answers. Have you okay. driven on the interstate highways in the past two weeks? Yeah, I did. Do you speed?
0: Uh, I think I, I did in the last two, yeah.
1: Okay. Now, most everybody, if you ask that question, would well, yeah, mm-hmm. five to ten over. Yeah so, yeah. so let's play it out for just a second because it's really important for people to think about because a lot of people will say, well, I would never do anything wrong. All BS. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You speed you speed, and here's what happens. I get on the interstate highway. I need to go from point A to point B. Maybe I didn't allow for enough time. Now, today, on the interstate highways, it's wide open. Yeah. But, you know, if it was three months ago on the 405 out in LA, God only knows how long it would take you. Hours. Hours. Yeah. So, I need to get from point A to point B. I'm in a car that allows me to exceed the speed limit. And rationalization is, okay, I'm in a black Camry. What's the probability the police is going to pull me over? And after all, everybody does it. And if everybody does it, then if I don't do it, I'm really going to be creating, I'm in my head now, a traffic conundrum. People are going to be flying by me, flipping me the bird, doing all of these crazy things. Oh my gosh. So we just have to do what everybody does. Okay. So yeah. if we're willing to do that speeding, what are we willing to do within our companies? Mm-hmm. Are we willing to sit there in our companies and take our phone and surf Facebook and do uh, text people all di- all during the day, realizing that if you add up all the texts and all of the surfing on Facebook and the likes on Instagram and the whatever it happens to be, you've just stolen an hour, hour and a half of time from your employer. Mm-hmm. But everybody does it, and I mean, I, you know, I just set the phone down and I'll go back to working because they don't pay me enough, and what this is really ridiculous, et cetera. What are the things that we are willing to do? that nobody seems to have any concern over because if you're willing to do the small thing, is it possible that taking that first step on a slippery slope and you started off by saying you had snow there. So you know about slippery slopes. Oh yeah. You go right down. Right. So, you know, if you're willing to take the first step on the slippery slope, is it possible you're willing to take another step? And is it possible over time that in doing that, you could actually be really advancing your choices?
0: Well, yeah. And, and I think I think you get numb to it after a while. Like, it doesn't seem wrong anymore. It seems right. like just... You
1: know, at 3 a.m., am running a red light. If there's nobody there or a stop sign, who cares? It'll be a rolling stop. It's mm-hmm. 3 a.m. Middle of the day, people going, you're going to be more apt to stop. Mm-hmm. Middle of the day, if everybody's doing 80 on the high, interstate highway and the speed limit's 70, but if everybody's doing 80, you just go with the flow of traffic. Right. If people in the office naturally are going to take pens or pads of paper or reams of paper because they need some paper for the printer at home because they're going to be printing something, their tax return, whatever, but then everybody kind of does it and that's just the way it is. So you start looking at that and you think it might not be good for the customer. What is it that we might do that might not be good for the customer? Because there are things that mm-hmm. could take place or it's not good for the company or it's a policy violation. I mean, people violate these things all the time. Now, it might get to the place where it's unethical in the speaking world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Ethical to buy your pictures and video and so forth that you're going to use. That is the ethical thing to do. Mm-hmm. But if you're sitting there writing a blog about COVID-19 and you're interested in getting a picture, you could easily put COVID-19 in a Google search, hit images, find a gazillion images, right-click on the doggone thing, stick it in your blog, and pay no attention to it. Till three years later, when Getty Images sends you a bill for $900 for using an image that you didn't pay for.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You didn't think about it because it was like, it's just an image that I'm using for a flipping blog during a particular point in time. Right. Right. Now that would be a violation of our uh, code of ethics for the national speakers association. It also would be illegal and Mm -hmm. getting images is pretty good about sending people bills for that kind of stuff. Really don't get out of. Mm -hmm. So you see how the slippery slope can kind of take place. So most people don't start saying, I'm going to be a fraudster. Mm-hmm. I never had that perception in mind. I became one, but I didn't start that way. Um, so if we can identify that there are things that will trigger us to make stupid choices, and by the way, there are three of those, just to throw this in. yeah, yeah. If Financial
2: mm-hmm. is a
1: trigger. We saw that in the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Okay? Financial's a trigger. Relationships are a trigger. If your relationship goes bad with people, that's a trigger to do stupid crap. Mm -hmm. And health is a trigger. Now, think about where we are right now. And this is like the flipping trifecta of people making stupid choices Mm -hmm. because it has a financial impact, it has a relationship impact. There'll either be more babies born or more divorces in probably nine or 10 months. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it has an impact from a health perspective, because now a lot of us will be rethinking what's our social interaction with folks. Mm -hmm. And are we immediately going to go out to the big NBA games and sit with a whole bunch of people? People will rethink what that experience is going to be like and it creates impacts to people's lives, and when people's lives are impacted in ways they can't control, they try to find something that gives them control.
0: Wow, okay, so then that's when they're gonna try to do the dumb things. Yep. Yeah, because they have control of that one aspect at least, so.
1: (laughs) Or they think they do.
0: Yeah. Well, they think they do. And it'll last as long as it lasts till it stops working.
1: Right. So. And you know, with what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. fraud busters, mm-hmm. you're, you can take to the bank. Every time you talk to somebody that has perpetrated a fraud somewhere, somewhere in their mind, there was a need
2: mm-hmm. in their head,
1: something that triggered an opportunity that ultimately triggered rationalization. And... You know, make it simple for me and you, Bernie Madoff, what was the need? It wasn't money to begin with. Bernie Madoff's need really was emotional when it went back to his childhood because when his daddy's business failed, little Bernie said, I am never going to be like that. It will never happen. And he was a brilliant guy. Yeah. But all of a sudden, when the market took a downturn, he was like, I cannot Not pay these people. i promised this. And Uh that's the beginning of then the Ponzi scheme. And eventually it just, well, this is just the easiest way for this to happen. And it would have continued to this day had it not been for the uh, um, recession in 2008. Because when the money dried up coming into his fund and people wanted money out of his fund, he could no longer sustain the fund, which is how Ponzi scheme always collapses.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean well we have this we have a financial hiccup every ten years or so. I yeah. think we've we've beat this one for a good two years, I think. Yep. Uh, beat it off. But yeah, here here it is again. So we're gonna see a lot of this. Uh coming up. Chuck, one final thought for people. Anything that yeah. people need to know?
1: Yeah, your history doesn't create your destiny. Mm-hmm. Um People have asked me, they said, when did you get started in public speaking? Well, I got out of prison in 96. Uh, a decade later, I was a senior B- VP of sales and marketing in a public company. So, mm-hmm. how do you be a senior VP in a public company and a convicted felon? And the answer is every choice has a consequence. If you make a different set of choices, the consequence will be different. Mm-hmm. So, I'm a convicted felon, but that doesn't mean I bring no value to the table. And so, for people who have made mistakes and that doesn't mean they're all convicted felons i'm not saying that but for people who have made mistakes you have a choice you can be a victim or a victor if you're a victim you're letting your history define who you are if you're a victor you're saying you know what it's part of who i am but it is not who i am and you know i have learned from the experience of the past that if i'm transparent I can lay out the facts so people can see the simplicity under which it takes place and maybe either recognize that in themselves or in others. Mm -hmm. So they're more cautious or recognize that promise illusion and trust is that three pronged approach to how fraudsters defraud people. So if I'm aware of a promise that is not, that is too good to be true, an illusion that I cannot absolutely pin down and guarantee is a hundred percent correct. And the, the, the fact that it's going to be with people that, that generally are pretty close that are trusting. Um, same thing that happened with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos.
2: Oh man. Yeah. I mean,
1: you look at it, you can see it, you can see exactly how it plays. When you look back, mm-hmm. the question is, can we look forward and recognize it before it happens to us?
0: Well, I think that's the goal, and that's, and that's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Yeah. And so um, how can people get a hold of you? Because you're a, actually a fantastic keynote speaker. Uh, tell me, what kind of groups are you good with, um, website, how do, how can people find you?
1: Okay, well, the website's easy. It's chuckgallagher.com. Gallagher is G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. Email is chuck at chuckgallagher.com. Gosh, I'm not a hard person to get in touch with. Uh, Phone number is 828-244-1400, (laughs) 828-244-1400, operators are standing by. That would be me. But, you know, here's the thing. I, I speak to all kinds of groups, whether it is the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the FBI, Lockheed Martin, or the International Association of Kitchen Exhaust Vent Cleaners. Hey. You know, every organization... Has the have people that have the potential to make poor choices, and um, Tracy, from my perspective, if I can do something to illuminate how those choices take place, so that maybe when we shine some light on it, we can prohibit that from happening. I think that's a positive thing. So that's uh, that. that's what I do.
0: Well, that's good. Well, I'm glad you're out making the world a better place and having learned from your mistakes. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.